Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Today's guest on the show is Eric Sanderson. Eric is the owner of Red Rocks Advisors. Red Rocks Advisors provides management consulting and strategic advisory services to contracting, engineering, and utility companies in the commercial and industrial construction industry. A couple of projects that Eric's been part of is T-Rex Project in Denver that included multi-module upgrades in the I-25 throughout Denver and the World Trade Center Oculus Project, which was a $2 billion project. Additionally, Eric facilitates executive roundtables around the country, and uh, he's delivered presentations on strategic planning for the Future Leaders Forum of the Associated General Contractors of America. Uh, He is what they call a bad man, is what we'll say. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being here. I appreciate uh, uh, having the time with you guys. Well, yeah, it has been crazy fun, and uh, we the amount of things we've talked about. We were just talking about music right before this. I mean, we can yeah. talk about anything. Uh, if you don't know Eric, you should know Eric. That's that's what I'm going to tell every listener <laughs> right now. If you know, if you hear nothing else during this podcast, you should know who Eric is. That is what my advice to you should be. Hundred percent. I totally agree with Good that. <laughs> All right. So I gave the the quick uh, you know spiel of who you are. Um, but you tell us, what is your origin story, Eric? Tell us about you, how you how you became you, and, and tell us a little history about Red Rock, or Red Rocks, sure. plural. Yeah, no problem, no problem, thank you. Um, so, um, you know, I've always been in and around the industry. So um, my dad uh, became a developer when he retired out of the Army uh, back in 1977, so super long time ago. So when I was a little kid, though, when I was a kid, I used to just – I spent time on job sites. So I've always been around construction projects. And so, you know, I was kind of make this little bit of a joke that was back in the day when you could, the bus on the way home from school, you just tell them where to let you off, they let you off. And so like, they would let me off at the job sites. And so then I would hang around the job sites till it was dark and time to go home. So um, grew up around construction, obviously, you know, uh, went to school and everything. Uh, from high school, I went to college at Oklahoma State University when I graduated. Um, I um, sort of looking for a job opportunity, ended up in Colorado and worked for a builder out there. And then we were just building these really elaborate second homes, very huge um, properties, pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, And that's where I kind of just started going full time. That's I just, you know, kind of went all in. And so uh, worked for this uh, GC for a little while, then picked up some trade work uh, in terms of skills, started a a tile and subcontracting or a a tile and stone masonry business. Um, Did that for a few years. Uh, That was fun. Also, I liked that. Um, But I also enjoyed really the business side of it. So I went to Colorado State University, I got an MBA. And and then in 2000 uh, is when I finished up graduated there and and started uh, consulting full-time uh, joined a consulting firm worked for them for about eight years another firm for about a year and then um, have been independent started red rocks advisors officially in 2008 uh, so yeah been uh, doing that since 2008 of course that's the height of uh right that's time to go the business on your own right yeah <laughs> clients are lined up you know in construction <laughs> oddly enough it's kind of interesting um when 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 there's a strong economy uh, and when everything's going well in, in construction, um, there's a big need for training because what happens is a lot of companies say, we need to make sure our workforce is ready to keep up. And, and companies are more financially successful, so they don't mind investing in training, right? Because it's a, it's an overhead cost to some degree. Um, but when the economy's not doing well and it's struggling, then companies shift to a focus of improving operational strategies and and than just strategic planning. So, you know, I've been uh, 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 blessed to basically the work is always there. It just shifts, right? It just shifts what it looks like. Um, and uh, at that time period, yeah, I, I, I began working with a few uh, a few firms, helping them with their strategy and and uh, it's kind of taken off from there. 
Yeah, it definitely has. Um, one, one of the things I know I mentioned in the intro is you um, have executive roundtables. You manage those. Um, I do. So, so why would somebody want to be involved in one of those there? Well, uh, an executive roundtable, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's a group of companies that are, are, are uh, similar in type of work, similar in size, but geographically diverse. So there's no competitive overlap. And what it is, it's an opportunity for the owners or presidents of those companies to get together with sort of people in their exact seat and talk about their business, share sort of practices, best practices, sometimes bad practices, right? They, in, in the context of lessons learned, but then help each other, like advise each other, um, you know, provide insight back and forth. They'll compare everything from financials to, you know, insurance costs to, you know, labor costs. And, and, and they're not looking to steal ideas from each other. They're looking really to help each other out. So they kind of contribute to each other's success. And, and oftentimes the members will come in and they'll have like, hey, here's a problem I'm struggling with. You know, what do you guys think? Uh, and they're getting advice from people that are in their exact seat. So it's that part of it, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty unique uh, because, you know, for most other, in most advisory roles, you know, your attorney, your accountant, your IT professional, your HR consultant, who, anybody else you might be using, they see the business through a specific lens, right? So other business owners or other executives, um, they see it through that umbrella, right? Realizing that they have a lot of responsibility underneath them. So um, getting advice from people in that position is very unique. And so it's, it's a big advantage for those organizations that are in a, uh, in a round table. Yeah. But it's, and it's fun. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Well, I think me and Will would agree when you get to talk to just, you know, you know, legit, you know, owners of businesses or people that are yeah. just doing things that are really cool and learning from them. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this podcast, right? We were saying like, Hey, if you could, if we could just give somebody a little nugget here and there from somebody that's either done it before or is going through it or has like overcome that it, it's huge. So um, you mentioned that one of your uh, roundtables is uh, uh, focused on diversity. That's not the right way to put it. Uh, sure, essentially, yeah. diversity leaders or minority-owned companies. Like, right. how does how is that one? Is that the right way to say that? And then two, how does that group differ than some of your other roundtables? Sure. So that one, uh, you know, the terminology. I mean, you could say they're minority-owned contractors, but um, they're not all minorities. Um, actually, probably the most politically correct term, it's not really about being politically correct. The most accurate term would be disadvantaged businesses. Um, but in some capacity that, inf that infers that they have a disadvantage, but it would be, of course, minority owned businesses. It could be women owned businesses, um, uh, vet veteran owned, um, you know, small businesses sometimes in some areas are considered disadvantaged, you know, because small business competing against a very large one doesn't have the resources. Uh, to effectively compete, um, you know, but then also you see in some areas of the country and some municipalities, they give preference to local contractors and very frequently the local contractor base is smaller and, and maybe doesn't have the level of sophistication um, to compete. So, yeah, you could say minority owned contractors, but it's a little bit larger than that. Okay. Uh, nevertheless, that group is very much focused on the same thing as the other one. Um, but that one does definitely come through the lens of that, you know, they're kind of, I don't want to say breaking into the industry because a lot of folks in there kind of grew up in it as well, but they're realizing that they have um, also an opportunity uh, in that group. It's interesting because everybody that uh, all the, all the participants and the executives that are in that group, they're all very forward minded. They want their business to be, you know, really successful. They want to contribute to the industry. They want to help each other out. That's the other interesting thing. They certainly uh, take an active interest in, in supporting each other and promoting each other's businesses. Um, the other somewhat interesting thing is a few members of that group that are very large national companies, uh, some very well-known companies. Um, and those companies are also very forward thinking in that they want to in turn also help these other businesses. And some, to some extent, it's about, you know, again, sharing of best practices, expertise, giving them advice, giving them sort of the heads up, don't make this mistake, you know, uh, that type of thing. Uh, but also it's, uh, like I said, it's a place to go to get advice. Um, and in that group, we typically bring in some outside uh, experts, um, which is great when you can bring in somebody from the outside that doesn't have a sales pitch as such, or doesn't have an agenda. And they're just like, Hey, here's this dynamic of the business. You need to know about that. So we've, you know, had, uh, folks address, you know, cybersecurity, um, uh, labor laws, 
um, you know, equipment management, uh, all kinds of sort of different subtopics in there, contract law, things like that, that are very important topics for, you know, contracting business to understand, but that they typically don't have the just super easy access to that knowledge. So, um, but yeah, it's a great group and, and they're, they're phenomenal about promoting each other too. How, how do you, or I guess for our listeners, how do you get involved in a, one of your led groups? Like, do you just got to get an application process? You got to, you got to know Eric or what's, how, how does that work? Yeah, you, you go, um, you got to go downtown. There's a particular street. You go to the alley behind it. There's a door, <laughs> third one down. You give a secret knock. That's how you get in. Got it, um, got it, got it. No, it's, it's uh, those groups that, I've, that I manage, they typically are, are put together because of a particular need. There'll be a group of them, that, a group of, you know, executives that come together and they say, you know, this is what we want to do and we need structure, we need organization to it. And that's what I do is I manage that process. Um, and so I've been approached a number of times by either a company or a group of companies to say, hey, can you help us get a little formal with this process um, and organize this? And then in the past, I've certainly assembled these, you know, known, say like two contractors and said, you know, you guys should kind of, we need to form a group around you guys because you're smart you're forward thinking and they want to learn and so then it's the process of going and finding other companies that have those similar characteristics uh, that can take a while you know so um, sometimes it's you know it's organic sometimes somebody just comes to me and, and says can you help us with this got it so to get in um you know that's that's a i don't want to say it's not hard but again it's it's a it, you have to find the right fit so first of all you know Somebody has to know that they're out there. Like, where do they go to find one? You know, I mean, I organize these um, on a fairly regular basis, but there again, you know, you kind of have to go and say, somebody has to say, hey, I think this is a good fit for me. Or again, like I said, sometimes I, I, I reach out and say, you should probably be a part of this. You don't know it yet, but you need to be engaged in this. Um, and so to reach out to them and engage them, uh, yeah, to become part of a, a group like that. Got it. So, that's that's one side of the things or one of the many sides of the things that yeah. you do so the other side is is and, and this is this is what i'm what i've interpreted based on what we talked you help communication between different entities that are doing large projects is that a yes. fair way to put that okay so as we know communication can be hard for lots of businesses individually and then certainly hard yes. when they're collaborating together so the question i have for you is how do you ensure that, um, you know, somebody doesn't piss Jim or Bob <laughs> off on a project that they're now stuck working with them for the next three years to build, say, a new highway or they're, you know, they're re you're redoing the I-25 or they're, you know, building an airport or they're building <clears throat> a massive uh, building. How do you, how do you get them not to be pissed off for five yeah, minutes? Sure. Each other? And, <laughs> and, and before we even get into that, um, explain why maybe even go step back a little bit and start with why these scenarios happen to begin with why is it that this happens right prior to you even you being engaging in something like this what happens in let's say these large projects right sure uh, sure um so it's interesting when when a company like a contracting firm you know goes and, and bids on a project and gets awarded um you know, they have this, they go through this big process of negotiating the contract, right? And you kind of, there's a lot of detail in there. And when you look at a construction contract, it, it, it reads, it's a terrible read, actually, they're very boring, but um, <laughs> it's, it creates the same, it creates the same emotion as if you were to work on your estate plan, which is you have to play out every negative scenario that could possibly happen and, and then figure out how do we mitigate this? And then you have to have this contract that at least on an estate plan, it's a one-sided deal right? Where you're deciding what this is going to look like. It may be depressing, but at least you're making all the decisions. Whereas in a construction contract, really you're having to negotiate through all of the what ifs, right? Now the construction contract also obviously spells out the deliverables, right? The, the, what is to be built and the specifications accordingly. Uh, that being said, all of that focus on the what if something goes wrong and what the what we're actually building, um, not much of it focuses around, hey, how are we going to work together? How are we going to actually collaborate? You know, are we aligned on this? Uh, you know, do we, are we, um, you know, do we like each other, right? Something as simple as that, it, it doesn't largely exist at the beginning of a project. You know, there's, I, I jokingly refer to the fact that, um, you know, contractors, when they're pursuing a project, 
it's like you're it's like you're dating somebody right you're, you're gonna take them out to dinner you're gonna be like look and you're gonna have clean clothes on and stuff like that and you know you want to make sure you impress them and then they then they win the contract and then and i'm joking about this of course because i know a lot of contractors won't <laughs> like this analogy but you win the contract and they suddenly treat their their owners like uh, like their ex-wife right the phone rings and like yeah hey, what do you want you know <laughs> <laughs> what do you want something out of me now i'm busy you know um but yeah so um what happens at the beginning of these projects is that you know all of the focus is around the contract and so we don't develop a sense of collaboration and sense of teamwork and that sense of competition that it took for a contractor to get the project then is consistent throughout the life of the project and they view it's not just the contractor so forgive me on this the owner would do it the same way right because they go through this process and a, a lot of times people who grew up in these organizations whether it's in an engineering firm or an owner or uh, in a contracting business they kind of and i say grow up they develop their their professional view of the world they literally are trained to not trust the other side explicitly said don't trust these guys right they're going to take advantage of you so um these stereotypes are every an owner wants everything for free right and you know that's it the stereotype of a contractor is um you know they're going to rip you off and they're going to change or you to death right so literally we train professionally trained people to not trust their counterparts but yet once we've engaged in a contract once we have a signed contract there is one mutual goal and that's to the success of the project and so sometimes frequently there's not good communication around the areas that we have alignment on versus the areas that we don't. And there's a heck of a lot more alignment. There's a heck of a lot more commonality of a successful project than there is, uh, uh, you know, um, differing interests, right? Of course, an owner wants to do it cheap, but they also want it done right. A contractor wants to make money, but their reputation is on the line. So, you know, when you go through that process, I mean, the best case scenario is that, you know, an owner has a contractor they can trust and a contractor has a project that they can go back and reference in the future. And they made money during the project, but also they can go back to that in the future and say, you know, here's an example of a great project and that owner will you know, provide a good reference for them. So there's a lot more commonality than we think. Uh, it's just sort of that, you know, sometimes professionally we're brought up to not trust our counterparts. So to now completely circle back around, you know, you've got all these competing personalities uh, on the project, right? Um, now explain this part around not pissing each other off because there's so many different personalities, right? Sure. There's egos and, and all that stuff, right? So this is where you excel. So talk to us about that. <laughs> well, part of it is getting on the same page as to priorities. And there is no question that there's a lot of personality differences. And um, the touch points on a project typically occur at the beginning of a project where we're going through negotiations, pre-construction, and then you get into actual sort of progress meetings and things like that. And frequently those are technically focused meetings. And so, which isn't a bad thing, right? In other words, we have to focus on what we're building. <clears throat> what we don't do a good job of is establishing just simply a, a, a and this is going to sound so like basic, but just a relationship like, hey, where are you from? Oh, you're from Chicago. Wow, that's great. You know, you grew up over here like, hey, you know, I love the Cubs, too. Right. Or just stuff like that. You don't see, you don't see enough of that so that you get beyond the I don't trust you and you get to, hey, this is just a person trying to build this project. So um, how do you get past that? It's like you get to know each other, number one. Uh, you get to have a little bit of an understanding of the personality differences because people are very different. And in the end, it's not expected that you'd be best friends. I mean, and that's not really that feasible, but you do have to work. You have to figure out how to work productively, you know, with your counterparts. And so spending time talking about what are our goals and priorities? Do we are we on the same page with that? Uh, what are the risks? Talking through those risks, um, finding intentional places to collaborate and, and problem solve so that they can sort of um, identify successes together, right? Have some mutual success is a way that you build that. Um, when you do see that there's some personality challenges, then it's a matter, and this is a lot of what I end up doing is sort of facilitating the dialogue through that. Um, so you're not gonna force a great relationship, but I, I refer to a lot of projects as, as uh, arranged marriages. If once the, once the, uh, the contract's been awarded, then we put a project team on it and they're going to go out and they'll be, guess what? This is your counterpart and they're going to be your counterpart for the next couple of years. You know, we're going to work with this customer, um, make it work. Right. So some of it is just in, uh, the interpersonal skills that you and I have, like, how do you go in to work with somebody that you don't know that well, that, you know, you're going to be working with them for the next couple of years. So some of it is sometimes it's, it's training. It's just being a clear communicator. It's putting, um, 
your assumptions and pride aside. It doesn't mean you don't focus on priorities and what's important, but it also means that you temper yourself a little bit. I think there's a great deal of maturity that has to come in. Um, sometimes when I'm counseling, and I'll use that term here, counseling a group, you know, it literally is coming back to some pretty elementary levels. It's like, hey, let's let's engage as mature adults and not worry about the small stuff. Um, if somebody said something wrong and 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 maybe it might have hit you wrong, let's let's push past that. We've got a you know big responsibility. We have a lot of people that we're accountable to, so let's focus on the commonality that we have. Um, because if somebody said something wrong, let's not get twisted about that. If you misinterpreted a communication, why don't you pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, this is what I read. Help me understand this. Or what is it you're looking for? What are you asking for? Uh, how can I make sure my communications are clear? So a lot of it goes back to some pretty basic interpersonal skills. What, what, one of the things that you had mentioned to us uh, when we were going through this was how when you make big purchases or you have a big project that's happening, how how minimal of actual connection that the two people that are actually making the transaction have. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I know you gave us an example of like buying a yeah. house that was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, so the example is that, yeah, when you buy a house, you know, for most people, it's the largest purchase I'll ever make. Right. And they're buying they're, they're the largest purchase they'll ever make. They're doing that from somebody else who that was their largest purchase, right? And yet there is no direct dialogue between the the people, the parties in there that you, we both use real estate agents. And then there's a there's typically uh, some sort of a um, you know title company involved. They also play an intermediary. So you have like several steps you're you removed from this counterpart who really is just like you, they have a home, they're trying to sell it, right? They, of course they want the most for it as they can get and you want a home, you wanna pay the least amount for it. So, but we still have this transaction where we have mutual goals, but we have these parties that are in between us whose very role is to keep us separated, right? And yet the parties that are, that are present in the transaction, they have so much in common. So it's interesting because on large projects in our industry, um, yes, there is some direct communication, but it is minimal in the context of the dollars that are being spent. I mean, it's amazing how little we actually get together and say, let's be aligned. Let's make sure we are working together strategically. A large project is like a, is like a strategic alliance. Um, if you get to pick two big firms that said, we're going to come together, we're going to kind of find a way for our products and services to match up so that we can go to the market together. That's what a large construction project is. But a lot of times, you know, the, the, the dialogue is very arm's length. Again, it's about the contract. A lot of it goes through attorneys, et cetera. So there's so little actual communication uh, where, where um, the executives involved or, or the decision makers actually look at each other and say, hey, you know, we're going to work together. Let's let, 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 let's go out to lunch. Right? Let's let's hang out. Let's have a beer. Let's get on the same page, you know, so that philosophically we can align. So, yeah, it's interesting. The, the free advice essentially is. Go to dinner with, with the other yeah. side. Have a beer with the other side. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I was talking with a group just the other day, and my grandfather used to speak of uh, breaking bread together. Yep. And in all societies, in many societies, there is there is a um, symbolic uh, gesture and um, uh, meaning behind sharing a meal. And it is one, it's, it's almost fundamental in humanity, right? Either to be a host or, you know, to be a guest. Um, and, and it's important. And so people don't really kind of realize it. And what it really speaks to is less about the formality and it's more about um, the commonality that we have, right? We all need to eat. And so when we can come to the table and sit down and, and then have a meal together, and again, it's, it, it's symbolic of a much larger um, function. Uh, but the idea of, of sharing a meal together actually goes a long way. And I see many times on projects, I, the last couple of years, I've, I've been working on projects where I'd go to a meeting, uh, and, and this is just in the last six months, I'd go to a meeting, and it was literally the first time where key people had been in the room together since the beginning of a project. And we're talking about projects that have, well, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in value. Um, and it's a, literally the first time that they had seen each other face to face. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You know, and, and they were effective. They weren't not effective. The projects were advancing. They were doing okay. But it's just you realize the importance of that face-to-face -face direct communication. 
And so when there is a challenge that it's a lot easier to have direct communication, say, what are we going to do about it? As opposed to start sending letters, um, spending money on attorneys and, and things that don't add a value. So you talked a little bit about dialogue before. Yeah. Um, sounds like you got a process around dialogue. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What, do, what does that look like? Sure. Uh, so I always start, you know, if, I, if there's two organizations and they're, you know, they're doing an alliance or they're building a project together, the first is is dialogue around the commonality. Like, what's what are the goals? Are we on the same page? Um, and going through that and talking about that and, you know, like putting it on a whiteboard or or documenting that and then just getting clarity, because that's where a lot of is achieved right there. It's just the understanding of, of what's important from one organization's perspective to the other. Um, the other part of the process of that that's important is an organization understanding that the goal that somebody else has, it's not necessarily bad, right? So they can hear my counterpart say, hey, this is what's important to me. Like, oh, okay, I understand that. And that makes sense to me. And sure, I can support that. So having that dialogue, um, the discussion around uh, challenges, problems, what can go wrong, you know, and, and, and getting uh, some uh, listing those out, having some discussions about those and working through those challenges before they occur. So a lot of times, you know, again, with all projects, they go, okay, I got a plan together and everybody loves it when a plan comes together, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens if it doesn't? You know, what's our contingency? In the last few years, one of the things, obviously, and it's occurring acutely right now, is supply chain issues. So rather than wait for something to be late, have the discussion in advance. So a lot of what I do is just sort of facilitate that dialogue to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to talk about what can go wrong on this. And sometimes that's very uncomfortable. It's like, like I said, like the estate plan, but in a facilitated environment, we're able to actually hit agreement on, okay, if, if that happens, this is what we'll do. And both parties then, or all parties then have a better sense of, um, they're not waiting for a crisis to happen. They've already somewhat have a contingency plan to get there. So talking through commonalities, goals, uh, how they work through disputes when they occur, when they occur and then identifying challenges and, and working through those also before they occur is, uh, you know, sort of the process, if you will, for, for making sure that they have means to engage. And then there's also just intentional communication. Uh, it's just making sure that there's a meeting structure. And some of this is pretty basic meeting structures that make sense agendas that make sense, that there's a, a formats for the executives to talk on a regular basis. So a lot of times, you know, organizations that are fairly vertical, all the communication occurs at the project management level. But if there's no communication direct to your counterparts at the executive level, um, sometimes those meeting of the minds that, that, that doesn't occur. Plus in Super vertical organizations. Yeah, in, in vertical organizations, you know, the information, if I'm an executive, I'm fed by the people that work for me. So they're gonna color it a certain way. Right. So, um, you know, do I really know my counterpart? Do I understand what they're struggling with and what their pain points are, their legitimate concerns, those sorts of things. And so by enabling direct communication, ensuring that there's, you know, meetings at that level, uh, it helps support a more integrated collaborative structure at all levels. Yeah, because that would avoid the telephone game. Right. I mean, like yeah. when I say what I want, but I tell you. And then you then have to go tell your right, people exactly. like this creates a, well, that's not my intent. That was not my intent or that wasn't yeah. the thing that I actually wanted to occur. Um, no. Yes. I wanted the job to be done fast, but that didn't mean I wanted the job to be done with, you know, poor quality. Like that wasn't, exactly. <laughs> that wasn't my exactly. intention. Um, so having that direct communication can sure up the, you know, telephone game essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of times there's compromise that has to happen, right? Not, you know, like you want, again, you want something to be done fast. You want it to be done, uh, you know, with good quality. You want it to be done cheap, all these different things, right? There's, there's always uh, something that's compromised. And a lot of times, is there ever a time where projects, you know, hit their goals that you achieve the goal without compromise? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Oh. That's the answer. All right, well, let's move to the next one. <laughs> let's so, go ahead and move on. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> so here's the interesting thing. All right, compromise. If you think about it at its core, compromise. It's the middle road. It's the middle between us, right? Mm -hmm. But the core concept of that is that you give up a little bit and I give up a little bit. So we've both given up something so that we can compromise, right? That's the core concept. The problem with that is that neither one of us feel 100% whole because we both had to give something up. 
So it, 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 can we get to compromise? Of course, compromise is actually fairly easy. It's largely, that's just an attitude. Hey, I'll give some up, you give some up. We'll call it good. We both put some blood on the table. We're good, right? The challenge is getting to win-win, which is where neither one of us have given something up, but we both achieve our objectives. So how do you so get that, that to work? <laughs> because if it, it sounds harder. so simple, Eric. Yeah, no, that's a lot harder because it really does take active interest in your counterpart success. So you bring up a good example, like, you know, want it done fast, but I don't want to compromise quality. So how do we, how do we achieve speed or timeliness and good quality? That requires a lot more fluid communication that requires, you know, strategy around our quality management, right? QAQC, we want to make sure we have that. We want to make sure we're clearly understanding of scope and specifications. What's going to drive that? Um, what drives schedule? What drives best, you know, sequencing? Uh, things that can impact schedule. And see, schedules are built not out of, uh, I mean, they're not sloppy. And most contractors do a decent job of, of putting together a good schedule. They work great up until there's a problem. Right. That's that's the challenge. So a good schedule is fine to, to you know hit a particular date. What we then need to do to make sure we're successful and deliver good quality and a good schedule is then go, OK, what can go wrong? And then work around that, because, you know, that, I don't know of a contractor that comes to the table and says, well, this job's going to be jacked up from the beginning. So we're not even going to try. Right. No, they always come to the table and here's a good schedule. Right. And, and here's our here's our work plan, which works up until the point that there's a problem. So when, when the organizations have, you know, good dialogue and they look at those issues and they examine what can go wrong, we, and then there's some flexibility. See, the other thing that compromise is not about the lack of flexibility. How you get to win-win is all about flexibility. That's all about, you know, can we help each other out? Can we enable each other to be successful? So oftentimes in, in, in large construction projects, um, the sense of helping each other sounds like, and it feels like we're being soft. We're being soft on the contract. We're being soft on conditions and sort of deliverables and things like that. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, it, 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 we can achieve results by just helping each other out. Now, how do we do that? Again, takes creativity. Um, I'll give you a quick, really technical example. Good. Submittals, uh, you know, typically during during the, the the beginning of a project, contractors and engineers they, they provide submittals, right? The owner or the owner's representative might review those submittals and then approve them and say, okay, this is fine, whether it's equipment or work processes or something else like that. Um, they uh, they then you know respond to those uh, to the contractor. Now, it's not unusual for submittals to either be rejected or uh, come back with comments like this doesn't answer what we're looking for. And it's not also not unusual for that process to go back several times. A contractor delivers submittals. It's not what they were looking for. They go back and forth, right? On large and complex submittal packages, it's entirely appropriate and you're not giving any legal rights and remedies away to meet before the submittals are due so that they can have a meeting of the minds and say, this is what I'm looking for in the submittal. This is what my engineers need to see for this submittal package to be approvable. Right. And then that way, the contractor can put together a package of documents that very much hits the requirements and it is approved the first time. And a submittal that is approved the first time is the way schedules were designed. No contractor designs a schedule to get reviewed four times. Doesn't happen. Uh, they review, they write a schedule so that those submittals are generally approved the first time through. But that almost never happens. Right. At least on large and technical submittals. So that's just an example of how. You know, you're not giving up rights of, to approve documentation or, you know, again, whatever it might be. It's a lot of times it's on qu equipment, work packages, work breakdowns, um, maybe site layouts, things like that. Um, those are things that, that you provide in a submittal. Um, and, and oftentimes, again, they go back and forth multiple times. But by clarifying expectations in the beginning, you kind of cut out that redundant and, and non-value add process. So that that's a good example of how dialogue when you have dialogue beforehand you can yeah. you know, actually expedite the process absolutely rfis uh you know request for information typical this common process on all projects um another one you know you fill out a form you submit it you know somebody sees it on the other side um and they might look at that and it's again it's also common that you know maybe an engineer and owner's rep responds like i don't have enough information can't answer it 
um, and that can go back and forth. And also the contract stipulates a certain amount of time you, you have to respond. So if I have a week to respond to an RFI, but I've got a crew out in the field right now, they've got a, a trench that's opened up. They need an answer because the meter is running you know, for them as a business. They're paying labor, they've got people out in the field. So waiting a week for a response to an RFI is really impractical, right? Um, it doesn't mean we're giving away the rights according to the contract, but if we can enable direct and immediate communication so that an issue comes up, that contractor can get on the phone with a knowledgeable, you know, representative of the owner and get an answer immediately. It allows them to stay productive. We haven't given up quality. The owner doesn't give up quality. And all we've done is improve communication, improve understanding. So RFIs are an important process. So not to be sacrificed, but there's ways to add to those in terms of improving our communications. So uh, in the same realm, right? So this is process around the communication. When we talk about like large projects, so let's talk about, let's say $50 million versus $3 billion. Is there a difference in process around those? I mean, those are both in any account considered large projects, right? But there's an entire magnitude difference in just the yeah. dollar amount in money. So Correct. is there a difference? There doesn't have to be, no. Uh, the differences are, you know, mostly it's it's a lot of it's time. I mean, you can't execute a $3 billion project all at the same time, just a sequence of it. I mean, a lot of times physical footprint of a project site, you can't get that much done. Um, that being said, so the larger projects are stretched out further over time, which is that actually, you know, maybe that play that says that there's more importance on getting these processes uh, refined and having good working relationships um, on say like a $50 million project, that would be, you know, it depends on the project itself. The processes don't have to change. You could use the same strategies. You know, they are a little faster, a little leaner. I mean, your project team is probably a little smaller. Um, you know, we should just have better quality engagement with the smaller team. Uh, but the, largely the processes themselves really don't need to change. Okay. So how does a company get to do those bigger projects? Like what, like, you know, if I want to build an airport, like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm making, you know, I don't know, houses today and I want to build an airport. Like, how do I get there? Like, what's, what's the strategy? Or a high yeah. rise. Yeah. Or, or a high, high rise. Or high, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's like, uh, it's anything, it takes time. You know, you got to start small and work your way up, but you also have to be intentional about it. Um, you know, I know plenty of contractors that have done a great job. They kind of found their niche. They don't want to grow that much. And so they stay there. But if you're, if your objective is to grow, the first thing I would ask is like, let's make sure why, because sometimes size is that, you know, what's this thing about envy of size? Like, right. Always like, I want to get bigger. I want to be bigger. Right. Um, but with size comes risk. Right. But as long as we kind of understand that and we're willing to mitigate the risk and how do you get there? Um, you know, it's, it's slow, steady, but intentional, you know, pursuing bigger projects, using your resume, you complete a good size project. And then the next one's a little bit bigger. You pursue a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And then of course you have to always have great uh, references because if an owner is going to hire a contractor, that's never done a project of, of this size before, I need to at least have confidence that the last one they did worked out. Right. So you always have to leave a track record behind you of successful projects. So it's incremental growth. Um, that's, you know, part of it is just, you know, steps, but intentional, right. Continuing to do that, having good relationships with your customers. Um, you know, if you, if there's a, if there's a significant jump in scale, you may partner with another firm, you know, maybe you don't want to risk that much because it is a substantial change for your organization. And so you find a, uh, another firm to partner with. That's pretty common, certainly on, on mega projects that we see in the industry. Those are, most of the time joint ventures of some capacity and hence the reason why you exist with the huh? communication hence the reason why you exist with communication 100 you know and communication is just as important in a joint venture as it is in a you know contract with a customer um, you know organizations frequently get together and say hey this is a great project this airport took this airport out let's joint venture to go pursue this airport project and they go this is great all right we'll do it and then they put their people together and their people don't know each other they don't have good marching orders. They don't have a, a strategy for how they're going to staff the project or operate it or anything else. And, you know, they may go through a number of stumbling blocks as they try to deliver. And the funny thing is, is that the owner sees this, that their customer looks at it and go, this is not a well-oiled machine. You know, this is a joint venture that has all the marquee names, but they're not performing that well. Right. And a lot of times it comes back to internally, they didn't do a good job of just aligning their team before they went to the customer. Real 
briefly, can you explain why companies joint, essentially why construction companies joint venture and what does that actually mean? Sure, uh, you, you essentially form a third entity you know, so so companies would come in and they say, okay, we're going to just form a partnership, and they, you know, it's a legally binding or you know, it's a legal entity. So you form that. Uh, you determine the percentages of ownership between the two. Could be 50-50, but it doesn't have to be. Um, the reason, though, is to again pursue larger projects and not put as much of your company at risk, right? It's also to leverage talent and skill. You know, I might be really good at one particular type of work, and this other company is really good at this other type of work. When we come together we can maybe do more self-perform more of the work inside of a contract um you know might i might have a better project management system and they have better field forces so that could be the case so you do it for a variety of different reasons uh but it certainly it does create the opportunity to pursue larger projects because then you have you know financial depth um, one thing it's common requirement of large projects is to uh, owners want to review the financials of the companies pursuing those projects so you want to know that they have a deep balance sheet that they got plenty of money, uh, the capability to to be effective. Uh, you know, typically you bond large public projects, and so you know that's a completely separate issue. But you know, I may not want to use all of my bonding capacity on a single project, so I might joint venture with another firm. You know, use some of their capacity and my capacity, and then you know we're able to you know, take on bigger work. So there's a variety of reasons you would do it, um, but you you definitely usually create a third. You know, there's a third entity you create for the specific purposes of executing know that project okay uh thank you for explaining that you know um you said something in the pre-interview uh that construction is not a product you said something else um can you because it's very interesting what you said and how you said it uh and i yeah. think just just tell tell the listeners kind of what, what it is that you said and sure. explain that a bit so i i say uh uh, you know, construction is not a product. We think it's a product because we're buying an office building or an airport or something like that. Um, construction is a service where the product is the deliverable. Right. Say so that again. Go, say, say, say that one more time. <laughs> construction is a service where the product is the deliverable. Right. Okay. So we go and engage with a service provider. Right. And at the end, that service provider gives us this product. But we, you know, what I do is I have to trust that that service provider is going to work with me in a manner to deliver that product that I need. And the, I use the analogy all the time of, uh, of a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant, like you look on the menu and the menu is always priced per product, right? A hamburger or a steak or whatever. Uh, but your characterization of your experience is always going to be based on the service, right? Not just on the service, the product is part of it but the service, the atmosphere, right? The, the decor, all of that factors into what that experience was like. It's not just the product, right? So it's not like uh, you go to a restaurant and they say, well, these days they do, I was gonna say, they tell you to wait outside until your food's ready and they get, bring it to you. They do that now, that's a little different, <laughs> right? But typically you go to a restaurant, you know, it, your entire experience is characterized by your experience with the host, uh, the wait staff, you know, Maybe the chef comes out to the owner, the decor, the cleanliness, all of that factors into the service experience that you have, even though the reality is the money you're paying is for a product. And in our industry, it's the same way because you don't just say, hey, I want to, you know, I want an airport. And it's two days later, hey, here's your airport. Now pay us $300 million. It doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> We're going to go through five years of service going back and forth talking. And so there's this, it's this service experience and the end result is the product that becomes the deliverable. Okay. That, you know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone else talk about it that way or talk about yeah. construction that way. So I, you know, I think that's very unique and I think there's a lot more to that, which is super cool. Uh, I like that view. So uh, I want to, step away from that for just a second. What's your opinion on working in your business versus on your business? Okay, good, good, uh, a good question. Um, working in the business is, is doing the daily work, right? And for like a business owner or actually any, anybody, uh, wherever, whatever level they're at, it's just doing the work itself, the, the, the technical tasks. Working on the business is improving the business or improving the effectiveness of the process that, processes that we use. And for a lot of business owners, they do have a tendency to work in the business is instead of on it, 
right? How do we build a better business? How does my business operate more efficiently, become more effective? And sometimes it's business processes, sometimes it's technology selection. It could be a number of different things like that that we would do to make our business more effective. The reality is most people work in the business. So I'm writing a proposal. I'm uh, updating a cost report. I'm entering an expense. I'm out inspecting a project, or you know, I'm talking. I'm working with my employees, or or something like that. That's working in the business. It's doing the technical work that the business does. But as if you're an owner or president or executive in a business, you have to spend time working on the business, building a better business, making it more efficient, smarter, adaptable, uh, uh, etc. I think the word is strategy being strategic i think is, is the word that's right that's right, being, right? Uh, yeah strategic with your thinking right it, it takes on uh you know do we work to achieve our our daily goals or quarterly goals versus are we working to achieve five-year goals there we go right? okay term horizon goals you know if you guys if, a lot of people out there you know their house is their first major purchase it's not something you decide over a weekend right like I may go to the grocery store this weekend, that's in the business, right? But if I wanna buy a house, it's gonna take me years to plan. It's like, I gotta save money, I gotta figure out the neighborhoods, I gotta you know, decide how much of a house I want, blah, blah, blah. So we spend more time strategizing on that purchase, right? So there we have to take on the mindset. And, it, it, we're, and a lot of people understand that difference between being a homeowner, right, and renting. A homeowner is a different mindset, right? You have to, you have to intentionally be, you know, manage your home. Uh, keep it repaired, keep it kept up, et cetera, et cetera, to, to maintain the value and make and, and keep it a good living environment. Let alone so, there's landscaping involved that's not even inside the house. <laughs> that's not even inside the house. Exactly. External, right? Will, Will yeah. has been uh, he's been building an irrigation system at his new home, so uh, he's uh, he's fully enveloped in the landscaping business now. I think. Yeah, uh, yeah you know, I'm a new um, homeowner, so. <laughs> Yep. If I can offer one quick anecdote, um, when I bought my first uh, new home, it was in a developing neighborhood and we ran through a number of challenges and I knew a little something about obviously construction. And so I would visit the job and I would see certain things. It was like, come on, that's messed up. That's messed up. So I'd call the project manager and have to say, hey, listen, you know, I stopped by the job and this is messed up and this is messed up. And so I was constantly bringing things to their attention. There were quality issues. Right. And, and after a while, they certainly got irritated with that because nobody likes a, you know, an owner up in their business all the time and telling them small stuff. Um, but when, once it was said and done, I know that, that that builder went on to do other things. Right. They built other neighborhoods and they went on and they really my, my house in their minds. It was so what? Right. One of many. But my house, in my mind, was one of one. And every time I would walk down a certain hallway and see that bow in the wall. Or every time I walked in the garage and I saw that area where they put the door in the wrong spot and had to suck out the concrete and replace it, all it reminded me of was bad service. So one of the things that, that we always have to keep in mind is there is a sort of a residual effect of what we build and it, will in, it interacts with our customers for the rest of their experience with that the rest of their lives or the rest of their period of ownership. And every time they look at it, are they looking at something that reminds them of a good experience or is it something they look at that reminds them of a bad experience? It memorializes the service that they had, right? And, and now there's this random factoid. Um, people remember and talk about a good experience for an average of 18 months. So if you have a great experience and, and you love a business, you bought a car, maybe, you know, whatever, you'll talk about that. You may even do a good little review on Yelp or something, right? And like, hey, this is great. Go get their pizza. These guys are awesome. If you have a bad experience, people will remember and talk about that for an average of 17 years. Holy cow. So pretty Ooh. much the age of uh, before kicking the kid out of the house. Yes, uh, exactly. I mean, I would ask you guys right now, can you think of a business you had a bad experience with? course mm -hmm. that you wouldn't do business with ever and it doesn't matter of course yeah and, and you know maybe that was last week but i'd be willing to bet you could name something that's been a few years yeah usually it's yeah. pretty easy so oh, i yeah. could give you the name of that contractor about that house room in colorado i'm not going to do it but i could <laughs> and uh, it, but interesting enough to your point right so that yeah. was when one you live in colorado you live Phoenix now. Um, and how many years ago? I don't know, but you know, yeah. it's been a while uh, since your first oh. home. And yet, 
it's still there. You're still, it's still there. And, and Yo, the garage door was in the wrong spot. What were you doing? <laughs> How could you get this freaking wrong? You know, um, but that's the thing about where, again, construction is a service and you deliver a product, but that product is a, is a permanent memorial to the service. It's a reflection of that business relationship that you had. Right. And while that contractor can go on and take on other projects, that owner, that customer will always interact with the product that you left behind. So really good insight. No, absolutely. It's a constant reminder. Okay, yeah. let's let's switch gears here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously we're an IT company. We need to talk about technology a little bit here. So how have you seen technology like being leveraged uh, to be successful uh, and help, you know, construction companies or engineering firms scale? Uh, there's a lot of really smart stuff uh, in the industry right now. I mean, it really is. And almost... A little bit of a bummer because you know a lot of contractors um you know they're focused on building projects right technology is not their forte nor do they want it to be their forte they build stuff <laughs> but, you're preaching to the choir my yeah, friend they build stuff <laughs> um the challenge is, is there's so much smart technology but the other sort of challenge with this is that technology evolves quickly right mm -hmm. i mean i've got my little device right here it's probably on its 10th iteration and just you know uh, eight years right and yet i could go to my customers that are building largely the same physical product that existed the last, like it hasn't changed but how we deliver does change so that's a challenge that i think a lot of uh, contracting businesses have to deal with and have to face but there's some smart stuff out there and it's evolving quicker i think than sometimes the industry can keep up with um it, I, you know, how does it change? It's, it's given us tremendous capabilities. It gives us scale. It gives us intelligence that didn't exist uh, prior, and it answers a lot of problems that we would that we've had in the past. Um, you know, it's interesting stuff as basic as drones are really kind of cool, right? But when you look at three D modeling, um, you know, BIM is is it's phenomenal in the industry, but it's a challenge, right? Because for BIM to be effective, you have to have uh, all of your trade packages all utilizing the same system um that's where you know are we building to the same model the same standards um project management packages software uh financial accounting software all of those are, are becoming smarter more efficient more uh, streamlined in how we you know we implement them so good tools but uh there again you know contractors want to just let me turn on my computer and make it work you know just wanted to answer the question so so implementing that technology sometimes yeah. is tough um, so if you have two companies, and I'm sure you've got some experience around this, if you have two companies implementing the same technology, one successful, the other's not, what's the difference, you know, from what you've seen, what's the difference and are there differences in expectations between the two companies, right? So that, that'd be the first, the second part of what you asked would be the first question, what was their expectation? Yep. Right. They just want it to work at a minimal level or they really want to use it as a leverage right to to get the most out of that tool um the other piece is a, kind of a couple items i'd look at to answer your first question is what was the level of integration and what was the level of training around uh, whatever that software that it solution was um, it's not unusual for a company in almost any industry to purchase a package or to bring something in and then just really only implement it or integrate it part way um, so it's doing, you know, 10% of its function capability uh, and then not train to it. You know, a lot of organizations will, you know, spend the capital to, to go ahead and invest in, in some in, in something, but then not the, uh, the training and the tech support to make sure it's implemented well. Um, or they get really cheap with licenses, you know, seats, right? So they like, you know, yeah, this is a package that, that we can use. It's great. And this package is expensive. And now we pay a monthly fee or an annual fee or whatever. And then we got a pay per seat. Um, and it's a man that's expensive. So I'm going to only have one person or two or three people inside the organization with licenses to use this. And so it bottlenecks business processes inside the organization. It doesn't make them faster. And so they actually lose the very advantage that that software would have brought to the table. Um, so, not so there's something, what I'm hearing is this actually has a lot to do with leadership, that implementing technology actually has a lot to do with leadership. Is that, is that true? hundred percent. It really does. I mean, there's all kinds, there's sometimes there's forced technology. I mean, um, some companies are forced to submit invoices through some sort of third party process, right? And so you're forced into that technology. So you could force me to do something different, mainly because, you know, we no longer sell leaded gas. I mean, as an example, right? But 
to implement it where I'm going to take advantage of it and where I'm going to get benefit out of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's about leadership. It's about understanding uh, and using it as a tool. You know, uh, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, referred to it as a technology accelerator. You know, it's not the solution, but it can help a business become more effective. But you have to be very strategic about how you want to use it and what business processes it's answering and how it integrates across the board. Good to great. Definitely an awesome book. Uh, yep. Highly recommend for anyone to read it. Um, so to go back onto the decision maker, what are the driving factors on kind of like the difference between the two companies? Why one does and doesn't. So talk about, let's say the mindset of the decision maker uh, a, a little bit more. Hmm. Sometimes and, it gets down. Go ahead. I was going to say, sometimes it gets down to the idiosyncrasies of personalities. Okay. Sometimes people are risk averse. They're just afraid of what they don't know, right? Um, or they don't trust the market. So they look at it and go, I'm not sure about this. I'll, I'll stick my toe in the water. I just don't want to go far, right? And then you have some people, individuals, or leaders that go, you know what? We've got to make this change. Let's go all in. Um, which this infers something else entirely, which is how do we embrace change, mm -hmm. right? And change is a tough one. And change by itself, that actual word is is one I try to steer people away from because it is, it connotates an element of the unknown, right? That we don't know really what's gonna happen. We like to know, and we have whole training programs around, we're gonna get an organization change ready. And we use fabulous terms like change management and all this other stuff. But the reality is it's freaking change, right? Um, I've been trying to lean people towards using terminology like evolving. It's a good right? word. We have to evolve. Like if we think over the last years, you know, our society, organizations, businesses have changed a lot. Yes, right. Some of that change is forced on us. But I find that the organizations that in intentionally evolve a certain direction are much more in control of that. Because evolution speaks to methodical, purposeful, and 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 uh, measured change, which allows right? for not. Yeah, so it's not reactive. Of course. It's not reactive, exactly. And it's not chaotic. It, it's like, okay, we're going to evolve to be this type of organization. It doesn't mean that you're going to change overnight. And that, you know, because oftentimes employees get worried about that. If I go to employees and say, hey, we're going to change things around here. Oh, you just first oh, words, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, you just panic. You know, everybody's like, oh, God, now what? Great. Some, you know, now what? Right. That's literally what people think, right? But if you go in and you say, we're going to evolve how our business operates, that sounds a lot different. But the reality is that's exactly what happens. Change doesn't happen overnight. It's slow. But when it's done right, it's methodical and intentional, you know, and it's purposeful in the direction that it goes. So, so a company that, that sets about a change initiative should, be, should think of it more as we're going to evolve the direction we want to go. So... Uh, how can someone, maybe they're listening to this uh, to this podcast, and they might see themselves as more reactive versus intentional, okay? Uh, and they want to improve upon that. What are some characteristics or aspects that they might need to look at uh, look at in order to stop being so reactive and more intentional, right? And this is more of a people thing, is what I'm really talking sure. about. How? What do you? What's the observation? How would they do go about doing that? Assuming that they at least recognize that that's happening. Yeah, uh, that's a very complex question because it really depends on the, the individual, the person. And because the reality is, oh boy, what feeds somebody's willingness or lack of willingness to embrace change or to evolve? Um, could be insecurity, could be fear, could be lack of trust, could be not enough depth in their staff to be able to accommodate a change. It could be they, in most cases, you know, it's oftentimes why people don't delegate. Why do people not delegate tasks? Because they're afraid it's not going to get done right. But how do you ensure a task is going to get done right? It's like you have to train to it. You know, parents face this when they teach their kids how to drive. At some point, that kid's going to be driving, right? It's going to happen. How do so, you get yourself over that edge? What I'm hearing is there's a teaching coachability aspect yes. uh, to it. What about ego? Is that so? Oh, if, if 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 co if coachability <laughs> is one side of the spectrum, is ego the opposite of coachability? 
I know how to do it better. You know, I've been doing it this way, right? Uh, I've been running the business for 10 years, yeah. you know, type of deal. I've made a half billion dollar company. Uh, yeah. I mean, right. Just look, I feel yeah. like the bigger the company, generally, the bigger the egos, generally. I'm not going to say that every company, every, I, I mean, it's not every company, but I've definitely met those personalities, right? Sure. Um, so yeah, ego absolutely can get in the way. It, it does. Um, you know, any one of us who we, we become somewhat, and I, and I, I'm cautious about saying the smart in what we do. And I don't say that, you know, right. Cause I'm learning constantly, but when you become smart in what you do, you immediately, you know, people have a tendency to go, like, I know what I'm doing. You don't need to be telling me. Right. And that having that block, depending on how much they feed that block, it can, really prevent their it can prevent their development in all levels or organization their personal development etc um I, I i refer to frequently that balance between not uh sort of the ego and uh, i'm sorry what was the other side that you coachability versus coachable coachability versus ego. so i refer to it as confidence versus arrogance okay okay so like arrogance says that's that's sort of maybe the ego side of the scale like mm -hmm. if I'm arrogant, like I got it. You're not going to tell me anything I don't know. And I've, I've heard that from people directly. You're not going to tell me, okay, great. Then I won't. So off you go and good <laughs> luck to you. Let me know how that works out. <laughs> Whereas confidence and confidence is different, right? Confidence speaks to coachability, but it's also speaks to the, the, the confidence, the knowledge that you can adapt, that you can learn, that you can get better. Um, somewhere along the, the line in life, I, I, I hit that mark where I was like, okay, I can't do all the things in life I want to, but I'm confident that if I apply myself, I could. That actually allowed me to let go of a lot of stuff. It also then allowed me to take in a lot more, to take in knowledge because I can learn something. So that became, uh, uh, you know, I was confident that I can get better. I can improve. I can make changes. I can evolve, right? I can do all those things. Confidence is important. It's, the, it, it's that sense of I can overcome an obstacle. Arrogance is a sense that that obstacle is no match for you. There's a massive difference. Uh, right? I feel like we could talk about this stuff for a really long time. <laughs> Eric, you've got a wealth of knowledge and it just ranges oh, the spectrum. You. However, just for the sake of time today, I think Justin's got one last question uh, yes, for you before we before we may end the podcast today. Yes, no and as a reminder, if you don't know Eric, the goal of today is to know Eric. Like that is the goal. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, so Eric, this is the question we ask everybody because it is crucially important to our knowledge gain and our confidence, uh, you know, gain of sure. what it is. Um, and it is, if you go back 20 years, Eric, what would you tell yourself? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, those weren't Cheerios in the box. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's it. <laughs> Just made that up. Um, you know, there's, you deal with a lot of challenges, a lot of unknowns. And I think I would have told myself, just be, just continue, go, just, you're all right. Just continue the path. You'll be okay. Um, you always, everybody, regardless of where they're at in their life and in their career, they face times when they're like, man, I don't know that I'm moving the right direction. I don't know if this is the right decision. And, and, and some people, um, fear consumes them and they don't make a move because they're never really sure it's the right move and they're afraid to make a mistake. Um, if you're just, as long as you're not arrogant, go forward, but be adaptable, learn, right? Be adaptable, learn. And, and I think I, I, I am fortunate and I will be the first to acknowledge that I did that. I was able to take, to move forward in life, move forward in my career, take risks, but learn and adapt quickly and try to stay fluid and not get stuck. Like this is the way it has to be. And if you realize you're going down a path that's like, man, this isn't going to work, pull the plug, get out of that situation, right? But if you're going down a path like this seems to be working, then pursue and, and go more. But you have to be adaptable. But allow yourself that opportunity to, to learn as you go through life. Um, I think some sometimes people are a little too cautious and they never take that next step. And, and as a result, they kind of look in their, in their life and they're not happy with it, you know? Um, 
I don't know that I would change anything. What would I tell myself? Keep going. You'll be all right. Wise all words. Right. I love Very I love hearing everyone's uh, uh, everyone's twenty year question. So thank you yeah. for that. Good question, Very, by the way. Very confident, which is uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, arrogance and confidence, definitely on the confidence side there, which is awesome. Um, okay, Eric, so you've already wowed us and I'm sure you've wowed our listeners. So uh, how can how can they get a hold of you? How can they how can they know more about you, Eric? Sure. Um, well, redrocksadvisors.com. That's the website. Um, you know, I'm a non-IT guy, so forgive me for the website. You can, certainly can reach out directly to me. Um, email EJS at redrocksadvisors.com. Uh, definitely, um, you know, can I get my cell number? Is that okay? Is that sure can. It all sure pipes can. through the same place. It doesn't matter as long as somebody doesn't start spamming with me with a bunch of stuff. Um, 970-215-6340 is the number. That's my direct line. You know, I uh, solo business. I work directly with business owners and leaders and executives. Um, you know, I, 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 help organizations with strategy. So that's kind of the level that I typically operate. Um, but yeah, if anybody has questions or thoughts and, um, you know, there's lots of, um, I'm fortunate also to be reasonably well connected in the industry. So if I don't have answers and I'm, I'm able with, for my clients, I'm able to kind of say, Hey, you know, you need to go talk to this guy or here's a resource as well. And that's something I, I enjoy and take pride in is just, um, having a, a network of resources of very intelligent people. Um, it's one of those things, again, you know, I don't know everything, but it's nice to know where to get information and knowledge. And it's, um, that's been helpful. Awesome. 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 We will drop uh, email website uh, number yeah. in the show notes for you. So uh, Eric, you've been amazing. Hopefully we can have you back on the show sometime and uh, to all our Love listeners, you. thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed Eric as much as we did. Cause uh, you know, he blew our mind, even though we've talked to him a couple of times already. So uh, that's just what he does. Um, so until next time, adios. Adios. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.